Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has five years of law enforcement analysis experience. He is currently a crime analyst at NYPD, but he comes to us from Trinidad and Tobago. He was an investigations officer with the Police Complaints Authority. He earned a certificate of crime analysis and prevention and analysis from John Jay College. Here to talk about, among other things, package thieves and what to do about them. Please welcome Nicholas Smith. Nicholas, how are we doing? I'm fine. I'm fine today. And yourself? I am doing very well. So thank you for joining me. I appreciate the time and and looking forward to the perspective of your journey to NYPD. And we are following in the footsteps of Alexander Lynch and Deb Peel. So I'm fascinated to hear the crime analyst one position and how that's treating you. So we'll start from the beginning. How did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? Well, actually, it was on my way back into the United States to to start back working. Initially, my law enforcement experience was with the Trinidad and Tobago Ministry Ministry of National Security, where I started there way back in 1994 as a a rating with the Trinidad and Tobago Coast Guard. The Trinidad and Tobago Coast Guard is an arm of the Ministry of National Security, and it is a military arm. It's not to say a policing arm. So it's in line with the, it's equated with the, the Navy in the okay. in the U.S. here. So I started my career in law enforcement there. The thing about it in terms of law enforcement, there's a, a variation with the arm of the Coast Guard, it has a law enforcement entity rooted in the Ministry of National Security, the law, the act itself, where Coast Guard officers can intercept vessels, any vessels within the territorial waters of Trinidad and Tobago, and search them. If there's evidence or any grounds to hold them, bring them back to shore, and then do investigation with the civil police there, and if charges are to be laid, it is laid by the police, but the Coast Guard officers will have to go to court and give evidence. So that whole probable cause and the stop and the search is uh, must be done according to the law. So okay. that's where Coast Guard gets their law enforcement badge then. Okay. So is this mostly drug evidence that's being collected off the ships, or is it other contraband? Yeah, drug, illicit contraband, immigration, okay. you know, human trafficking, okay. arms as well. Because Trinidad and Tobago is just about four nautical miles off the coast of South American coast, Venezuela. Mm-hmm. On a clear day on the Western Peninsula, you can see, on the Southern Peninsula, you can see Venezuela. It's clear oh, day. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So then that sounds like with your work with the Coast Guard, was it a smooth transition then to becoming an investigative officer with the Police Complaint Authority? Well, that was like I joined the the, the Toronto Police Complaints Authority 
which again is governed by legislation. Mm-hmm. And that gives that authority the power to investigate police officers for several offenses, be criminal, corruption, police corruption, and against the police injury in Tobago, their standing orders. So serious police misconduct according to their standing orders, the Police Complaints Authority can investigate matters that arises, say from the public, or the authority can do true audits, can look in and say, this is something that we need to, to, to investigate. So the investigative tools were wide in terms of, of data of the investigative authority in Trinidad and Tobago. But I only, I started there in 2011. Mm-hmm. So in terms of my career in law enforcement, I was a member, active member of the Trinidad and Tobago Coast Guard up until 2002, 2002. And while in the Coast Guard, I was privileged to be in special unit a unit that specializes in in special operations. So that gave me the opportunity to train with even the Navy SEALs and other of the U.S. law enforcement, say DEA and other sections that would would come and offer training. That inspired me to move on from the Coast Guard in 2002 and go into an intelligence arm within the Ministry of National Security. That, That arm dealt with covert operations, as well, as well as other assignments so delegated by the Minister of National Security. So in, in 2004, I decided that, look, in terms of my career, I was still bottom tier entry level. Mm-hmm. I needed an education because mm-hmm. I had just had a, a high school diploma in Trinidad and Tobago. And in order to be promoted to any position, I would need a, a, a degree. Something traumatic happened in my life. Well, I shouldn't say traumatic, but it's a fact of life. My father passed away in 2002. Oh, sorry. And I saw that I needed to do something. Because when I looked at, you know, my father worked every day, mm-hmm. you know, grew both my sister and I up. And I saw what was, my mother was, was relatively young. She was just like, 48 when my father passed away. And I decided, look, this is what my father left for my mother. It's just for my mother, you know? This is not going to happen to me. And my father always inspired us to get that education and work harder. So I started to look out. I heard about John Jay College and I applied and was successful in starting my degree there. I started doing my bachelor's in, in criminology and one of my professors encouraged me to join the BAMA program where you do both the bachelor's and master's at the same time. And I did that. I graduated in 2009 with my master's in criminal justice. And I went back to Trinidad and Tobago to my old job. But by that time, there was the government had changed and there was a little political rift in terms of that agency being doing covert operations. There were some allegations that was brought up against it. So that is when I I applied for the job in the PCA. I was hired because of my experience in in covert and intelligence investigations, but no criminal, no criminal investigation background. I didn't have that. I learned it on the truck. So I had to learn how to investigate things from a criminal aspect, gathering evidence. Yeah. So how did you like 
the covert aspect of it when you first started there with the within the ministry 2002 it was yeah. it was exhilarating it was exhilarating i had training surveillance training with the french dst mm-hmm. the director of surveillance they came down and they did courses with us mm-hmm. it was it was amazing how the information is used how using the tradecraft they applied to acquire intelligence it was fascinating. We had British intelligence officers training us. It was amazing to just to get that tradecraft. After you see things like dead letter boxes and all these things, how how you would run your CI or agent, as the case may be, it's interchangeable in the US and and the British, what they call their CIs. So it was an experience. Are you able to share any stories regarding uh, your time there? The agency that I used to work for is now the bank. Mm-hmm. At the time I was in the agency, we had to sign an oath of secrecy. Mm-hmm. But seeing that the, the the agency is now debunked and <laughs> there was a political fiasco, I would be wary of of, of sharing stories there. Yeah. All I can say is that what we did, it was in the interests of the nation as well as the Americas. Yeah. When you're dealing with surveillance and, and developing the CIs and and going undercover. Was some of the training then involved in acting, like per- perfecting yeah. your your acting skills? You must. It was actually an operation. It was actually planned. You have a cover story. You had a mm-hmm. cover officer that would go over the operations with you, so you know exactly. And most of the operations did not involve you being armed. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, you were in there because you are actually dealing with people who themselves are armed, but you don't want to walk in there with a gun, right? <laughs> so, because you would have to explain yourself. Yeah. Well, that's that's uh, added pressure. So not only do you have to be a great actor, you're unarmed. You don't have anything to back you up there if no, you do yeah. get yourself into trouble. Your backup team has to come in and take you out, or yeah. you have to get yourself out of that. Yeah. Right. So, so did you find the the acting part of it? Did you did you find that easy, or is that something you really had to work on to hone your skills? As long as you embrace your tradecraft, it would be easy. Mm-hmm. You know, you go over, you study, you study your target, the environment. Um, it would be easy. Yeah. It would be easy, no matter where you land yourself. And as long as you have a cover story and you stick to it. It, and you have the mission at heart, you will be successful and safe. Nice. nice. So you go, as you mentioned, you decided to go get your education. John Jay, was that online or did you actually go to school in New York? Yes, I, I, I went to school in New York. Mm-hmm. I applied for a student visa and invested all my savings to be here, to come to New York and study. It was not an easy experience. It was very expensive, mm-hmm. but I paid my way, you know. Now, how was that transition then coming in to the States? Huge investment for you, certainly not wanting to fail, but also dealing with the culture and studying. As you look back now as your first couple of months there here in the States, what are some of the things you remember? Maybe one of some some struggles that you had that you overcame? You you said it right there. You said, don't want to fail. I did not want to fail because I knew 
at that point in time, by then I was a, an, an adult. I was like 29 years old. Mm-hmm. So there's no room for failure mm-hmm. in, in that in that aspect. Most people are 29, working the, the years that I worked, there's already they have a house, they have a car, they're married, they got kids, and, and, and they're settled in terms. Mm-hmm. They know what they want to do in terms of the organization that they, or the, the, the field that they chose. With me, I just knew I'm a person like this. As long as I, I, I want something, I work for, towards it. And I, my father grew me up like that. Mm-hmm. I qualify myself. My father always told me, you want to be somewhere, qualify yourself and apply. So in terms of coming over here, making the investment, all I did was just numb myself to everything that was around me. I had a professor, my, one of my first professors was Professor Vincent Nicolosi. He was my English teacher and he inspired me. It's like tough love. He reminded me of my father. The first few weeks, I remember writing the first essay. I got like a, a, a B plus. I said, wow, I just, I, I can, I can do this, you know, <laughs> write it. The second paper, I got a D and he said, all right, come. The first paper, I just, you know, what's your first assignment? I don't want to break you, but you have a lot of work into the, the, the English lab, you know, to improve your writing. I will personally, you know, look after your work. I spent five years at John Jay, or four and a half years or five years, and I never left the writing lab. I stayed with Professor Nicolosi throughout. My, my essays were top in terms of his tutelage, and he always inspired me in that way. He didn't break me at first. And he told me when he gave me the D, he said, listen, you got work to do. Go to that lab. You know, and he said a lot of people wouldn't take it when after I I graduated, a lot of people would not have took it as you did. But inside, I knew I didn't want to fail. I knew I had to to write properly in order to get good grades. So did you, once you finished college, did you know that you, what you wanted to do? And then decide to move back? Or what was your decision process once you were about to graduate? I always wanted to go back to my country and go back to the Ministry of National Security and push policy reform, push push on an agenda to keep public safety at heart. Mm-hmm. But it's not easy getting into the, the public service or civil service where you have people, DFEAs, people without degrees, people without that look on the outside of what criminal justice is. Because in terms of Trinidad and Tobago, yes, they may talk the, the lingo of uh, criminal justice, but you can see if you look into to, to the country, the way the, the ministry is set up, right? It's not criminal justice as we know, the, the, the police, the courts, and, and the prisons or corrections, as, as we call it up here, and that is the, the criminal justice system. The, the the prison and police are attached to the Ministry of National Security. The courts is another section. So that communication, that transition for persons is not that smooth, mm-hmm. you know? And, and that, I always say that's something that, you know, in terms of reform, they have to look at to bring these three entities into one ministry and to have that flow resembling America. Because Trinidad has a British background. Okay. So the, a lot of the things that they, they have government-wise or constitutionally is, is more from the, from the British aspect. Although we, we do a lot of interface with, with the U.S., 
it's like a little social confusion that we, we go through from time to time. And it takes it takes people to really do that, that brainstorming analysis and say, listen, let's write public policy different, you know, to, to our benefit. You know. So is this where you then have the position there where you're more like internal affairs investigating yes. complaints against officers? Yes. Yes. So in 2010, they, they passed a law that they needed to have serious police oversight in Trinidad and Tobago. The law, the law basically gave the police complaints authority, who is now run by a gentleman by the name of David West, my former boss. You know, mm-hmm. that that organization, as I said, invest police corruption, serious criminal complaints brought against officers, serious police misconduct, and so on. It also has a a, a line where, as long as there's mention of a, a, of the police being involved. The police complaints authority can investigate any person. So long as, as long as the police has interaction with that person and there's an allegation brought about that, they can do it. So it's a it's a it's wide it's a wide ambit they have. So there I was, not knowing anything about criminal evidence, having to take statements from from people that is evidential, and not knowing what to do. I'm writing like if I'm still an intelligence officer, you know, just the, the facts and whatnot. And I had a supervisor by the name of Alan Miguel. He's a, a lawyer. He now works for the policy, the National Security Policy Office in Trinidad and Tobago. Now he had, he he moved on. So he took me, he was a former police officer. And he took me and he said, this is how you write a statement. You know, he made me again. I, I always meet people like that. I always appreciate them. You know, I always appreciate that. You know, that tough love, you know, they make you, spell out what you, what you do in front of people, you know, and then show you and mold you the right way. You know, that's something that's how I grew up, something that I appreciate. I don't know how younger people are, you know, being called in front of your room to read your work. But Alan Miguel, Miguel played an integral part in getting me, you know, where I'm at in terms of investigations. And it was not difficult because of my education with John Jay, you know, it was it was it was easy, you know that that those classes with criminal law and constitutional law, I I I really took them seriously mm-hmm. and was able to apply aspects of policing that are the courses that I did in Arjunje and apply at home. wasn't It wasn't different, difficult, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. So, what were some you, of the the changes? Because I. Certainly, you know, every industry has a certain way that they want folks to write. And and so you had mentioned that you were writing more like an intelligence report, but then he sat you down and said, this is what you needed to do. What were some of the tips or some some techniques that he was suggesting that you do when you're writing these reports that are more investigative in nature? Well, it's totally started with the statement. A statement is actually evidential. It's a, it's a sworn officer taking a statement from a person, right? It could be a person, a suspect, a witness, right? Well, in a lot of case, it would be a suspect, but more so witnesses. And that has to form and be written in with rules, right? Judges' rules, right? That the courts would recognize. So certain things must be mentioned, the date, the time. In terms of the witness, if it's a witness, they must be able to recall that day. They must say something if it's, it was their, their daughter's birthday or, or 
the rain fell heavily that day. You must bring these things into the statement. And then whatever they're describing, they must be able to say, there must be key things, key statements that you you inspire the person to say, was there anything in your way? Did you have a clear line of sight? How was the lighting on that day? So, And then they describe what they saw or what you as the investigator is hoping they add to your case, right? That to build your case against the perpetrators or the alleged defaulters or perpetrators as the case may be. You have to write these things in a statement and it must be concise and clear. And it must go with the judge's rules or the law as the, as the courts recognize it in terms of a statement. And it's actual evidence. Okay. So, so that's like an investigation. It's a, it's a statement in Trinidad and Tobago is actually an investigative tool used, witness statements. It's a ma- it was one of the major things, you know? Okay. Mm-hmm. Besides the writing, are there any other aspects of the job that you feel that you struggled with in the beginning, but pretty much mastered by the time you're finished four or five years in? I wouldn't say. I was I was always keen. I, I am accustomed with the outdoors. A lot of investigators get bogged down into the office, right? Because they have a lot of paperwork to do. I found ways to do my paperwork, right? It's getting out there and, and, and really looking at to see what happened. Most investigations, I believe, is a, a freeze frame. It's a pit here. It's a still pit here that you take a moment in time or a couple mm-hmm. of still pictures. And you as the investigator, when you see that, you look and then you pull out, why is this like this? Why is that like that? And you ask yourself question. And that gives your line of inquiry. So that for me was easy because I always like to be outside, you know, Mm -hmm. and knowing the country or knowing the environment was was helpful, you know. So it wasn't that hard for me. Lastly, just, just bringing all of that back in terms of making your notes bringing it back to the office and putting it on paper mm-hmm. and then analyzing what you put on paper, if they are actually finding that's evidential to, to prove it, the allegations made against the person. Okay. That's, that's it. That was it. Then right. working there for six years. Okay. And you started when they were just really creating this concept. You talked about laws changing in, in 2010. So when you're coming on board and you're doing it for six years. Do you think that you really saw a lot of change during that time in terms of corruption and how it was treated with the unit? I wouldn't say, but I wouldn't say there was a lot of changes, but the PCA gets into it. They, they try their best. One of the things that I was a little frustrated by and always, I always, they didn't, they had an act, they had a legislation. Mm-hmm. The legislation is much more pointed than, say, the CCRB in New York, Civilian Complaints Review Board in New York. The legislation just stopped short of arresting, just have to have any powers of arrest, right, mm-hmm. in both cases. But in terms of investigation, the PCA could investigate criminally. So they had powers of search and seizure, working with other entities in law enforcement, you know, asking for evidence in a timely fashion, and it must be produced. Otherwise, the person could be taken before the courts. So, but as I said, what was frustrating is that they did not operationalize the act in terms of, do we have a procedure for search? Do we have a procedure to work with this entity? Do we have a memorandum of understanding 
with certain entities, you know, mm-hmm. that's where it stops short. And that's where policy is important. And I'm a, a stickler for policy. <laughs> and I hope one day I'll be able to work in a in a in an entity where I, you know, is at the wheel of policy, you know, policy evaluation or policy creation. Okay. You know? All right. So let's move on then getting into you becoming a crime analyst with NYPD. So what goes into that decision? You're back home, you've been doing this for six years, and opportunity comes up with you moving to NYPD, one of the biggest cities in the world, to become an analyst. Well, that starts with my wife, Kanisha Smith. She's a, she's a sworn officer mm-hmm. with the NYPD. Oh, okay. she, she allowed me to pursue my dreams and I'll go back home and I'll leave, leave New York in 2011 and go back to Trinidad and Tobago. You know, actually the contracts at the PCA is three years. So the first, the first three years, I said, she asked me, you coming back home? I said, no, I want to, I want to stay because I want to get promoted. Mm-hmm. I must get promoted. Mm-hmm. So I got promoted after, at the end of the, 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 the first three year contract. So I had, so I had a, a, a small team and I have investigators that I supervise. So. I decided, listen, I can't stay away from my wife for so long. I won't, <laughs> I don't have all that leg room. So in 2017, the end of my contract, I came back up. So it's like, what am I going to do? Right. Mm-hmm. What am I going to do? So my wife joined the department in 2016. Right. And I'm back here in 2017, not knowing what to do, having a master's degree, you know. All my law enforcement experience is more or less in Trinidad, actual. Mm-hmm. It's in Trinidad and Tobago. So she, she was the one that saw this opening on Indeed uh, for a crime analyst for the NYPD. There was no chance of me ever becoming a sworn officer because I was I already aged out, mm-hmm. right? Because they, they, you have to be 35 to write the exam. You could come on the job after, but you must have written the exam at 35. So I said, all right, let me apply, but I'm not sure if I'm going to get this job. <laughs> but I really, I really hope I do. So I applied and I have to go to Trinidad. I was actually an electrical mechanic doing electrical work mm-hmm. for a company called Control Spec run by a gentleman called Kenneth Tesh. You know, Kenneth Tesh, again, another guy that showed me tough love because I didn't know anything in terms of electrical work. And he gave me that break until mm-hmm. I I worked my way up to a foreman in his company. So when I came back, he took me back. So I'm there doing a job and I get this call for for an interview to come into the NYPD for an interview. So I'm elated because I'm actually going to one PP, one police plaza. Yeah. I always wanted to walk into that building. So I said, even though I don't get this job, I'm going to get to be in that building. I hope I pick up some 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 pebble or some some stone and put it, put it, put it in my pocket when I'm leaving. So I went to the interview and I met Deborah Peel and a female lieutenant for the interview. And Deborah, I call her Deborah. She she asked me, "What do you know about crime analysis?" And again, I had to go back to the PCA 
which has a a part of the legislation where they have to account for their annual activities. And I worked on that project, you know, mostly Excel, you know, putting the complaints together, having the variables, and just making a couple of tables in terms of pivot tables and percentages and submitting that, doing the write-up and submit, submitting that. I did it for more or less five of the six years I was there. So I, 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 sold, I sold myself as that at that interview. I, I didn't think it was much in terms of, you know, when, when I read what an analyst does, a crime analyst does, the different uh, aspects of crime, the crime analyst feel. I didn't think it was much. But 45 minutes of leaving one PP, feeling proud that I was able to go up to the, the 11th floor at one PP, I got an email with a job offer. Nice. And, and I immediately replied, yes. <laughs> and I, I start started tomorrow. <laughs> I started, yeah, I started, it was the, the interview was in the end of November, I believe. And I started the 17th of December, 2017. Hey, this is Don Reby. I'm here with Jason Elder on Analyst Talk. And I want to share with you that there is a new book coming out for supervisors called Building a Crime Analysis Legacy. This is a law enforcement supervisor's Roadmap to Building Long-Lasting High-Quality Analytical Capacity. August 10th is the day that it comes out. Don't miss out. Tools, strategies, everything you need to build quality analytics is in this book. So be sure to get your copy on August 10th. Hey, this is Freddie Croft, Lieutenant with HPD. My public service announcement is to encourage people to get a key model of skill acquisition. Learn a broad set of skills across many different things, and then find one that interests you and dive deep into that. Learn and become a subject matter expert in it. Doing that will allow you to be extremely successful in your career. Hi, my name is Brian Napolitano, and I'm here to talk about name badges. When you're attending a training or a conference, please make sure your name badge is at an appropriate height and is legible enough so that strangers won't be staring where they shouldn't, just so they can figure out your name. Thank you for listening. So with the job of crime analysts, you know, you have the data that you talked about that you, you had become accustomed to when you were there in Trinidad and Tobago. And what other aspects of the job when you first started did you find maybe particularly challenging for you that you had to overcome? It was the technology, the, the in-depth, the, the way how things were coming at you and the vast amount of data mm-hmm. and actually in the MIP after we did our first couple of weeks in the academy they sent us back out I didn't initially I didn't go to a precinct right away because I wasn't placed in one right away I worked for two weeks under Deborah at 1PP mm-hmm. but after coming to the, to the precinct you were not really sure about what to, to give what role you play in, in terms of crime prevention and that's, that's the whole beauty of probably how it was set up. It was set up, you know, in a way that not all the analysts were in the same, same place. And it still is that way. Mm-hmm. You know, some analysts were together. Some analysts were out on the field, out on the field, working, finding their way. I appreciated that. Mm-hmm. I appreciated that concept because what, what Deborah allowed us to do was to grow on our own and communicate 
what we what we were learning, you know, mm-hmm. by way of reports. You know, she didn't she didn't give us okay. This is what you all do. She 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 made our minds grow. You know, it's 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 a pity that she's not with us because <laughs> I really believe that how her view on things, we would be you know much more elite than we are now. Although we are elite, don't get me wrong, we do <laughs> our work. You know, if the commanding officers ask us for things, we produce. You know. Mm-hmm. But that that whole thing, the amount of information and what to give your sergeants, what to give your your lieutenants, you know, mm-hmm. what to give the CO. This is the commanding officer of the precinct, yeah. you know. With the other side of the coin there with that question. So there was that aspect that you kind of over, had to overcome. But was given your experience and your personality, was there aspects to the job you were just really comfortable with and picked up really easy yes the, the being part of the military before and working in in, in that setup was easy i had a great i had a great sergeant he moved on now to another branch still a sergeant but he he was great from from to rios that's my sergeant he really worked with me we were like like partners i would say <laughs> in terms of because he was interested in the analytical part of it, as well as his, him doing the, the administrative part and being a police officer at the same time, you know, being a supervisor. He was always open to, to my ideas, you know, always working with me with developing reports. So with him, I found my niche in terms of analyzing the ground for, for the majors, the seven majors, putting out reports in a way that's digestible for deployment for the CO to use for deployment and also picking up on cluster analysis in terms of vehicle crime. Because we have uh, at the precinct I work with, actually I was just doing that report, the vehicle crime report, where we look at the again the big the bigger picture and start through our PD codes, our internal PD codes, start pulling the PD codes that speaks to vehicle crime. Mm-hmm. Right, so we would use a number of crimes, use the PD codes to pull it, and then we hone in on them on a map, and then do these reports. So it gives us an idea of what what's going on in terms of vehicle crime. We when we do that, we're able to see the going, what's going, what what's the condition in terms of vehicle crimes, because at times we get things like window break, batteries being taken from from scooters, catalytic converters. And these things are not in PD codes. There's no PD code for a rival battery. But within the narrative is that's where we pull it out. Mm-hmm. So we use our keyword search, pull these things out, makes layers. And then we say, we tell the commanding officer or the, the lieutenant responsible for deployment, this is what's going on here. And it's here. Probably it's on the border with another precinct. So that we could say, listen, we're sharing information. You all are getting hit with rebel batteries. We're getting hit as well in this in this area. So that's what it came to. And it came with working with a sergeant that is, you know, comfortable, you know, working together, mm-hmm. giving you a chance to do your analysis as a civilian, you know. Yeah, so that 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 was that was a good thing. I had, had a great sergeant. 
<laughs> All right. So I think this brings us to your analyst badge story then. And for those that may be new to the show, the analyst badge story is the career defining case or project that an analyst works on. And for you, as you're looking at all this data and identifying big picture opportunities for prevention, you hone in on the idea of package thieves. And this is certainly something that every every municipality in America, I believe, is struggling with in one form or fashion because there's so much more packages being delivered straight to the houses now and given opportunities for what they call porch pirates, people to, to steal the packages before the recipient can even bring them into their residence. So let's start from the beginning, identifying the issue and some potential solutions for this phenomenon. Well, well, coming up with the issue, again, I, we, I always, I, I, I do it every week, you know, at the precinct, but the whole idea to frame it, to make it make sense in terms of a project came from me going back to John Jay to get some more training in terms of the academia in crime analysis. So John Jay offers an advanced certificate mm-hmm. in crime analysis and crime prevention. So I enrolled in it. It's six courses, I believe, that you would take. Um, but it opened my eyes to environmental criminology and going back to the work of rational theories like rational choice, crime pattern theory, and, and, and uh, novelties on or work by individuals in terms of crime prevention. Things that many people are not sold on, you know, at first, and, and if you're doing criminology, especially like rational choice, you know, they just think that just, just simple. But it gave me another look into the way how these theories could be used for crime prevention. The problem-oriented policing came into view. So now looking at the, the great Herman Goldstein and his work and seeing that there's a whole entity out there, there's a whole body of work and I'm sitting in the NYPD with all this data. I do a package theft report every week. Let's see if I can make one for New York City. So that prompted me to do the, 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 the project. But in terms of the data, there wasn't much to go on because, as you said, people, most of the package theft research was done in the suburban setting and they referred to them as porch pirates. But here in New York City, it's something different. Yes, there are single unit houses and whatnot. People have porches in the city. Yes, there's some houses like that. But the majority, what I found, the majority of incidents were in residential apartment buildings, not public housing or large apartment buildings that, you know, has a staff, a janitorial staff, you know, that has a doorman and all of these things. It's more so in five or six story buildings. So the data speaks to that. So I decided to to go that way and do problem-oriented policing guide for package theft in the city. And it sounds like that, what you described there was a lack of a suitable guardian. You're getting to a situation where if they had a bellhop or if they had, I I shouldn't say bellhop, but if they had had (laughs) staff members 
on site there at the facility. Not really as much of an issue with these package thieves, but when you go to scenarios where there's not anybody there on staff and the packages are left alone, this is where you're seeing, this is the environment where you're seeing the most problems. Exactly. So, you know, the, the, the theoretical framework lies with the routine activities theory, you know, which allows the foundation for us to just think in terms of package stuff, the motivated offender while engaging, while the um, offender is engaging as everyday activities will encounter a vulnerable ta- target. Right. Also, the rational choice theory provides for like the decision making process of a highly motivated offender where he or she, you know, contemplates the benefits and potential risk mm-hmm. of taking that package. Mm-hmm. Right. All in the urban setting. And also the Branton Holmes, their theory of crime pattern theory, where there's this, this travel between both offenders and victims. Right. But in this case, it's more or less the offender and the victim or the target being the package. So mm-hmm. just movement. So in terms of GIS, my GIS training, you know, and crime mapping, which I, I got from John Jay, that GIS, our GIS foundation from John Jay, it allowed me now to look at when I get collected my complaints in terms of package theft, looking at my PD codes, because we have internal PD codes for packages in terms of grand larceny and pedit larceny. We have PD codes at the FYPD for inside a building, unattended package, inside a building, unattended package, outside a building. Grand larceny is the difference between a grand larceny and a pedit larceny is the cost. Grand larceny is $1, over $1,000, the, the, the cost of the property, they would consider a grand larceny. But we also have burglaries where burglars, right? burglary perps would target packages, right? Which brings me to, in terms of how I analyze the vulnerable areas of the building, and that fits into the the environmental criminology aspect, where the packages are left or kept, and it would be in lobbies. So in the suburban setting, you would have what we call porch pirates, but I'm hoping that I'll be able to coin a phrase for the urban setting <laughs> <laughs> that would yeah. deal with something with lobbies, you know? Yeah. That's where that's where we have the incidents, you know, where, you know, there's the front door. As you said, there's no capable guardian. The front doors are sometimes left unlocked and starting. Poor lighting or even in the lobbies where they leave the packages, people coming out, they can't see if somebody is hiding behind it. So in terms of, of the, the problem-oriented policing guide, I had to develop a crime script, you know, as to how packages, how the perpetrators, right, in terms of their, their journey to where packages are kept, how they, how they steal. It. And that's also important in, in, in terms of selling it to the department or anyone who's interested in, in the project, you know, enhancing the project. I have to show you how these things occur, you know, in terms of the crime script, which is a, a, another theoretical framework I use to develop that in my presentation, you know, how the individual will, will case the area, what, what, they, what, what they would do when they take it 
how they would make good their escape and on and all these things. Because, and where I got that from, again, is from the data, because the officers in writing their narratives would bring these things out. Also, as an analyst, you can't be afraid, especially at the precinct level, you can't be afraid to ask officers certain things or in terms of our access to ECMS and video, look at video or ask detectives what what's the story like, you know? So that's how I was able to develop the crime script. And the, the, the crime mapping shows, and I would say at face value, you know, the crime pattern theory. Because most of my perpetrators, when I study the perpetrators, they have drug abuse problem. Mm-hmm. Most of them, most of their, their backgrounds, they have their pattern burglars, right? Or they've been arrested for pedic larcenies you know, shoplifting and, and whatnot because of their habit. And the the analysis shows, I, I had to home in my analysis to my precinct, which is the, the 90th precinct in Williamsburg. So study the area, the demographics, the layout of the building, which I got from city data and pull them in to, to my GIS analysis. I also use census data to show the population as well. And I was able to, to, to show that 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 route in terms of a diagram of how a perpetrator, where he lives, isn't packaged up there. It's, it's really, when you do a cluster analysis, there isn't much activity where he, where most of them live, which is primarily in public housing. But as you go out into the residential apartments, you see, and also with the mix of drug, people who were arrested or where police make stops for selling narcotics, you see along that route where the individual makes that, the perpetrator makes that trip to get drugs, where the concentration of package theft occurs in the precinct. So okay. the analysis shows crime pattern theory in effect. And I have a diagram in terms of my presentation that I was able to, to put on paper. You talked about the journey of this crime, the lobby. We can't call them lobbyists. <laughs> but <We can't. laughs> the, the, the lo- going into the lobby and stealing the package i'm just thinking rationally in terms of a thief he or she has no idea what's in that package normally no. right so you have no idea what you just got your hands on in terms of value but you do know that you want to score right you want to then get to the drugs and you talked about the the distance between your thefts and your open drug markets and so i i would think the first thing you would go to is the pawn shops right because they're the ones that are going to give you the money if you want that quick turnaround knowing that you're not going to know what you have out of your package until you get to a spot where you can open it and see what you just got. Yeah. So I would imagine then too, it's the proximity to the pawn shops in this as another location factor as this, you walk through step-by-step to this journey. Yeah, definitely pawn shops would be looked upon in terms of that. So in terms of a recommendation, reverse buys, you know, visits by the special operations lieutenant, the pawn shops, all these are part of departmental procedure in terms of property crime. We do that, you know, Mm -hmm. from time to time. So 
that's that's why a, a pop project or a pop guide for analysts, you know, analysts wishing to do these things and understand departmental procedures in terms of crime prevention or investigations are very important. You must, in terms of your solutions, right? You must be able to marry wherever wherever you work at into your your recommendations. So phone shop visits and enforcements are part of the solutions, right? But in terms of in terms of selling it, I had to do I had to do these these diagrams and these maps to show that look, you have a problem. You have a problem and there are solutions that are not always hard and fast policing solutions, you know, where you say, okay, because you identified there's a drug nexus to your package staff, we should go and do counter narcotics operation all the time. You know, it's much more than that. My solutions would 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 marry into locks. They'll marry into reaching out to landlords, reaching out to tenants, the pub- public education, redesigning lobbies, you know, which might be expensive, but it it could add employment. Reaching out to the schools, having having competitions, poster competitions, or making signage that you know children could put up and and and, and appeal to perpetrators that Patrick package theft is wrong. These things come in, and where the NYPD could be play an important role in crime prevention. You know, instead of just you know we're doing reverse buys or looking to to be on 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 the on the corner. Right, even offering alternatives to incarceration or prosecution, because there was one one perpetrator that was always hitting us in the nine. I wouldn't call his name, of course, but I asked about it. I say last year, and I said he's in the rehab. He took, I don't know, it was offered to him by the judge, and I haven't heard from him yet. You know, mm-hmm. I haven't heard from him, and he lives where most of the perpetrators live in 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 one area of the of the of the precinct you know i wish i wish this 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 interview i could have put up the slide to show what the data speaks to because it's it's real yeah you know? are, are we able to publish this information that you that you sent your presentation are we able to publish this i would have to seek departmental approval but i'm trying to sell it through the department Okay. I'm trying to, to to see right now. It's on the CEO's desk because I work for the CEO. It's his information, it's his data. So I want to give him a chance to to look at it. You know, add any you know add-ons or anything like that, and then probably send it out to my department where all the analysts come under, which is the chief of crime control strategies. I want to give it to the chief as yet and go over my CEO's head. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. Okay. Well, hey, if we do get approval by the time we publish this, we'll definitely put in a link into the show notes so you can get more information on this presentation that Nicholas is referring to. So I guess so. there's obviously some, some, some things you recommended in terms of this, whether it be education for bringing to their attention the impact of package theft, improving the the lobbies, and certainly I know the sender of the packages, right? The Amazons of the world, right? They have scenarios where sometimes it requires a signature or, you know, they've put it in certain situations where they just can't deliver anymore to certain locations because 
there's too much theft there. There's too much reporting of theft that they're not going to just leave the package in the lobby anymore. And so it's definitely multifaceted and definitely something that will continue as long as, number one, the packages are just going to be left there unattended. And number two, they can get value for whatever they're stealing. Yeah. You know, and most of the solution or the responses come from situational, situational crime prevention, that theory, you know, you know, by way of, you know, increasing the perceived effort by the perpetrator to get the package, increasing perceived risks, reducing the rewards and removing excuses, you know, those, those headlines in our situational crime prevention. And because of the crime script, we're able to get these solutions out. So definitely Amazon, FedEx, things like package lockers in vulnerable locations, if they want to, if, you know, we, we could talk, you know, everybody bring in the stakeholders and talk about putting it in. Or even when we redesign lobbies, if landlords want to do it, or if there's an incentive by, let's say, representatives, political representatives, or even the banks who might want to assist, you know, in, in terms of building up the, the environment or the neighborhood, design these lobbies with package lockers in them where the tenants could use them, make it affordable. Things like doors, I've been doing some research with with people that make security doors right in Brooklyn, you know, with cameras that's, you know, it's more for security in terms of the explosive proof, bulletproof and all these things, you know, people could get out there and work, you know, to see if you could have an incentive for landlords to buy or design one that is affordable, so, you know, to prevent these things from in terms of crime prevention. So that's there. Amazon and FedEx definitely... I'd really love to sit and talk to them and see if they would be interested in them, you know? Yeah, I'm almost, I guess it's probably more difficult than what I'm thinking it would be, but I'm actually surprised there isn't like some kind of service out there that will take your FedEx package and then deliver it whenever you want it delivered. Because FedEx is not going to deliver it at a certain time, right? It's going to deliver whenever it makes it to your location, right? right. But if you wanted to make sure that you were home when the package arrived, then you can have that service say, okay, you're going to get my package and then I want it delivered at 8 p.m. But it's all about convenience, right? Because you could have it sent to somewhere where it's a locker, like it's a P.O. box somewhere, like in the FedEx store. You could go there, but then you got to go there uh, at a work, find the FedEx store, when they're open, get it and then bring it home. And that's super inconvenient. Yeah. So, but something where they're actually still delivering it to your home, but it's at the time that you want it, there might be something to that. Yeah, but there, there are other solutions where actually the, the, the landlord and the tenants could work it or make an, like to make an available space. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's for our crime prevention officers or our officers to get in there and have that community relation get mm-hmm. in there and say look we're going to educate you we're going to train you in terms of what's the going rate in order to secure your packages you know yeah. that is part of the some of the solutions as well yeah there's definitely something to that you talked about apartment supervisors somebody needs to be around during the day 
That's what it comes yeah, down to. Kiss, it almost even comes kiss down to the, like the summertime, like now. You'll see you it's busy. People and and this is the thing that the data speaks to. The data speaks to I, I analyze the months. And September where August, September, where people are going kids are going back to school mm-hmm. and there's this influx of buying stuff for school. Mm-hmm. That's where we, we get hit a lot. So even though in the summer where kids are home, you know, you can, some, as you say, working with the community, put, put in all those ideas there, just have kids just working or just mm-hmm. doing something in the, in the building or even on an, an um, elderly person just doing their, their, their duty. Some people would take up the offer, some might not, but it's yeah, just different solutions. It makes me think of, you know, campsites have that, right? Where they'll have right. a person on a campsite that's there camping, but they are the person that's responsible for any issues at that campsite during that time. And people that are camping there can sign up to be that person. And so in a way, it's almost that model there where you're trying to find someone or a group of people that are on a rotating schedule to to be available there and certainly certainly takes some coordination but if it was easy everybody would be doing it right yep <laughs> and you know the whole thing about a pop guy you can make it for any crime because i'm, I'm also interested in another project with, in terms of violence i know a lot of people comes into the job you know they're always interested in guns and guns and especially gun violence now mm-hmm. but i came about i came about a we in, in new york we have a, a problem with certain gangs that are rivals because of drill, drill music, drill rap that originated in Chicago. Mm-hmm. I did some research in terms of that, and I, I, in the initial stages of identifying the groups, right? Because the groups go under two banners. I don't want to call names, but they're affiliated to older gangs, right? That's identifiable. Mm-hmm. But because of our record keeping, how we how we identify gang members, which goes to federal guidelines and whatnot, they do not fit the mold of, of a gang member. Mm-hmm. But they still go under the umbrella. So some of them, we can't find them in the system. And I had to do some research. I read some work by Forrest Stewart. I think he's out of the, the University of Chicago, I believe. But anyway, Forrest Stewart wrote The Ballot of the Bullet. This, his research helped me to understand trail rap, you know, so much so that I saw he, he spoke of the rappers in Chicago early, you know, the corner boys, he called them in his book, and how they're fascinated when you look into it. The problem, yes, everybody would talk about violent, you know, but when you dig deeper into the music, into the the way or what these individuals want in notoriety, right? The whole thing about social media pops up, right? And you see now where there's this underworld economy that's driving this aspect. So again, if you look at it from a problem-oriented viewpoint, you can make, using data, you can make crime prevention strategies out of that. And it deals with alternatives because Forrest, Forrest Stewart didn't say, okay, we need to have more, more police on, 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 on the street, more gun suppression units, stop and, stop and frisk. He spoke again of 
alternative. And the whole thing is understanding your environment, understanding your problem, right? That exists in your environment as an analyst and put forward, you know, the data, of course. And if, if the department allows you crime prevention strategies, that's meaningful and you can operationalize within your department because it's investigative tools or policy, you know? Yeah. I was trying to think of the word when you talk about folks that maybe not uh, violent, don't have a lot of arrests, but they seem to always be there when stuff's going down. (laughs) And I I think the Um, word, I think the word that I'm thinking of, I just Googled it real quick is crime facilitators. These are folks that are helping the situation, but aren't necessarily the folks committing the crime. They're just helping the act of the crime be completed. So well, first just outline in terms of general and the violence. He outlined the, the key players. He outlined the, the people who are on the street, you know, how they operate the rapids himself. Because most of the time the rapper is not the violent one. It's his his body or his buddies, the ones that go around with him. Normally they're the ones that carry it carry the gun and they are sometimes not in the pity at all they would do the shooting and you wouldn't even know then there's other people like who do the videos they're those that make the beats because forrest forrest you spoke of the people that make the beats itself and put it out into the web they're not even in this from this country they don't they never even met a real rapper but they just have the the mechanisms to do so even the people that have the studios you know to just have the money to have the recording studio and these rappers pay money to come in and, and record. And sometimes it's their last dollar they have. And it's an industry that some people are profiting from and some people are paying with their lives. So it's very important for us to understand where we are at because it's a problem that we've been having in New York City. The mayor, the new mayor, Eric Adams, he mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, not a couple, a couple of months ago, he spoke about Jolrap. I even spoke to David Kennedy. He's at John Jay, very famous researcher in terms of the Boston Ceasefire project that he was instrumental and was successful. Another pop project. I spoke to him and he gave me some pointers as to start, you know, my work and encouraged me. He gave me the blessings. He said, Nicholas, this is a great um, avenue you want to go down. But it, it would take, you know, a lot of research. It's just putting it together. That's one thing. It's how to put it together because I myself, I don't go out on the street, you know. I don't go out on the streets, you know, just getting the blessings. Again, it had me, I may just have to pull data, analyze, and just sell it, yeah. you know. And that's, that's, that's how it is working at the precinct level, yeah. you know. You have your ideas, but you have to sell it from inside the precinct. Yeah. And then it goes out, yeah. you know, you just can't send your work all over the place just like that. People don't have time for that, yeah. you know? Well, you told me that your ultimate goal is to influence policy, right? And yeah. you, to do that, you have to sell ideas. Definitely. Definitely. Right. Very good. Well, I look forward to seeing your name on Pop Guides in the future. And certainly a very interesting story, Nicholas. Thank you for sharing your insight and your story with us. I'm going to wrap up the show now with words to the world. And this is where I give the guests the last word. You can promote any idea that you wish, Nicholas. What are your words to the world? 
I, I would really like to see individuals coming in into law enforcement and really dedicating their time to service. You know, I, I look back on myself as someone in law enforcement. I've never been a sworn police officer. Uh, you know, I may have wanted to be. I aged out when the opportunity really arised. But what I see is a lot of people coming into law enforcement or even people are influencing public safety that are not keeping in line safety and service to the people. You know, it's it's being driven by a lot of ideologies, be it wherever it is. You know, Andrew Carmen at, at John Jay spoke of that ideology. You know, one of one of in terms of how society sees itself. And police, law enforcement officers must always maintain independence. I want to see that. And that would bring out service. Because look at me, I'm 49, approaching 50, you know. One of the things I always do is get up in the morning and go to work. I do my little. I can't arrest anyone. I can't really knock on the door and tell the, my chief that, so this is a good idea. I think we should, you know, push push for this. We should do this the deployment. But just getting up in the morning, doing that service, coming in, doing my reports is my little part. But there are people who have the opportunity to make changes for public safety. And I implore these people to act on the independence of your institution and your office for the greater good. That's 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 my word to the world. <laughs> Absolutely. Very good. Well, I hate to say this because I, I have one tagline that I always say, but it really doesn't fit with you. I say, well, I leave every guest with you giving me just enough to talk bad about you later. But thank you, Nicholas, so much. Appreciate your time and you be safe. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.